Okay, so depending on how old you are, you've probably had at least one person you considered yourself to be deeply in love with. But have you ever loved someone enough to literally turn them into a deity? This actually happened. And not by some fringe cult leader, but by an actual emperor. And not just any sort of emperor, but a Roman emperor. This is the actual story of Antinius. Little is known of Antinius's life before he met Roman Emperor Hadrian, although it is known he was born in Claudiopolis, present-day Bolu, Turkey, in the Roman province of Bithynia. He was probably introduced to Hadrian in the year 123, before being taken to Italy for a higher education. By the year 128, he was considered a favorite of Hadrian and taken on a tour of the empire as part of Hadrian's entourage. In October of the year 130, as they were part of the flotilla going down the Nile, Antinius died amid mysterious circumstances. Various suggestions have been put forward for how he died, ranging from an accidental drowning to an intentional human sacrifice or suicide. Historian Royston Lambert described Antinius as the one person who seems to have connected most profoundly with Hadrian throughout his life. There's no reliable evidence Hadrian ever expressed a sexual attraction for women. In contrast, a ton of reliable early evidence shows he was sexually attracted to boys and young men. And if you're familiar with Greek and Roman history, you're probably aware for centuries, sexual relations between a man and a postpubescent boy had been socially acceptable among leisured and citizen classes, with older Orestes, the lover, aged between 20 and 40, undertaking a caring sexual relationship with the Eromenos, the beloved, aged between 12 and 18, and taking a key role in the younger one's education. Yes, it's fucking gross, but so are a lot of parts of history. Hadrian took Antinius as a favored servant when they were aged about 48 and 13, respectively. Yeah, pretty fucking gross. So what else do we know about Antinius? Hadrian believed Antinius to be intelligent and wise, and they had a shared love of hunting, which was seen as a particularly manly pursuit in Roman culture. Although none of them survived, it is known Hadrian wrote both an autobiography and erotic poetry about his particular favorites. Early sources are explicit in the relationship between Hadrian and Antinius being sexual. During the relationship, there is no evidence that Antinius ever used his influence over Hadrian for personal or political gain, which isn't surprising, considering how young he was and how relatively short his life was. Speaking of, in late September or early October in the year 130, Hadrian and his entourage, among them Antinius, assembled at Heliopolis to set sail upstream along the Nile. On their journey, they stopped at the Hermopolis Magna, the primary shrine to the god Thoth, the Egyptian god of writing, magic, wisdom, and the moon. It was shortly after this, around the time of the festival of Osiris, that Antinius fell into the river and died, probably from drowning. Hadrian publicly announced his death, with gossip soon spreading throughout the empire that Antinius had been intentionally killed. While the nature of his death remains a mystery to this day, and it's possible Hadrian himself never knew the real answer, various hypotheses have been put forward. One possibility, he was murdered by a conspiracy at court. However, this is unlikely, because Antinius himself seemingly exerted little influence over Hadrian, thus meaning that an assassination of him would serve a little purpose. Another suggestion, Antinius died during a voluntary castration as part of an attempt to retain his youth and thus his sexual appeal to Hadrian. 
While this seems more likely, it is improbable because Hadrian deemed both castration and circumcision to be abominations. And as Antinius was aged between 18 and 20 at the time of his death, any such operation would have been ineffective. A third possibility, the death was accidental, perhaps because Antinius was intoxicated. However, in their surviving evidence, Hadrian does not describe the death as being an accident. Lastly, Antinius might have been a voluntary human sacrifice. The earliest surviving evidence for this comes from the writing of Dio Cassius, 80 years after the event, although it was subsequently repeated in many later sources. In the second century, Rome, <clears throat> in the second century Roman Empire, a belief that the death of one could rejuvenate the health of another was widespread and Hadrian had been ill for many years. In this scenario, Antinius could have sacrificed himself in the belief that Hadrian would have recovered. If this last situation is true, Hadrian might not have revealed the cause of Antinius's death because he did not wish to appear either physically or politically weak. No matter the cause, Hadrian was devastated by the death of Antinius. In Egypt, the local priesthood immediately deified Antinius by identifying him with Osiris due to the manner of his death. In the same month, Hadrian proclaimed Antinius to be a deity and announced that a city should be built on the site of his death in commemoration of him to be called Antinoopolis. The deification of human beings was not uncommon in the classical world. However, the public and formal divinization of humans was reserved for the emperor and members of the imperial family. Thus, Hadrian's decision to declare Antinius a god and create a formal cult devoted to him was highly unusual, and he did so without the permission of the senate. Hadrian also chose a star in the sky between the eagle and the zodiac to be Antinius, and came to associate the rosy lotus that grew on the banks of the Nile as being the flower of Antinius. And while Antinius was understood differently by his various worshippers, in part due to regional and cultural variations, in some inscriptions he is identified as a divine hero, and in others he is a god, and in others a divine hero and a god. Inscriptions indicate Antinius was primarily seemed as a benevolent deity who could be turned to aid his worshippers and cure them of ailments. Hadrian was keen to disseminate the cult of Antinius throughout the Roman Empire. He focused on its spread within the Greek lands and in the summer of 131 traveled these areas, promoting this cult by pairing Antinius with the more familiar deity of Hermes. Still, the cult of Antinius was never as large as those of well-established deities such as Zeus, Dionysus, or Demeter. However, it spread rapidly throughout Europe, with traces of the cult having been found in at least 70 cities. The cult was most popular in Egypt, Greece, Asia Minor, and the North African coast, but a large community of worshippers also existed in Italy, Spain, and northwestern Europe. Although the adoption of this cult was in some cases done to please Hadrian, the evidence makes it clear that the cult was also genuinely popular among the different societal classes in the empire. Part of the appeal was because Antinius had been human himself, and thus was more relatable than many other deities. At least 28 temples were constructed for the worship of Antinius throughout the empire, although most were fairly modest in design. Those at Tarsos, Philadelphia, and Lanuvium consisted of a four-column portico. Sculptures of Antinius became widespread, with Hadrian probably having approved a basic model of his likeness for other sculptors to follow. These sculptures were produced in large quantities between 130 and 138 with estimates being in the region of around 2,000, of which at least 115 survive to this day. 44 have been found in Italy, half of which were at Hadrian's Villa Adriana, while 12 have been found in Greece and Asia Minor, and 6 in Egypt. 
Over 31 cities in the empire, the majority in Greece and Asia Minor, issued coins depicting Antinous, chiefly between the years 138 and 135. Many were designed to be used as medallions rather than currency, some of them deliberately made with a hole so they could be hung from the neck and used as talismans. The fact that we have so many statues of Antinous which have been preserved up till the present day is at least a remarkable fact. Because his cult was the target of intense hostility by the apologists of Christianity, whose followers vandalized and destroyed artifacts and temples built in honor of the young man. So the next time your partner tells you how much they love you, ask them if they're willing to create a whole ass new religion centered around you. And email me and let me know their answer. Welcome to Out of History. That we can walk the streets as ourselves and not be harassed by anybody. Just be ourselves. Be proud to be ourselves. I think we need a radically new definition of what it means to be masculine. It's a pretty fucked up society when the army gives me a medal for killing a man and a dishonorable discharge. is now there are certain people who can't afford it. So those who can do it on behalf of those who can. Hello and hi and welcome back to another episode of Out of History, my personal favorite queer history podcast because it is my queer history podcast. So before we get into the story, let's talk really briefly about my favorite thing to come out of this weird new reality we're living in which is how much celebrities are fucking up on a regular basis. It seems like everything they're doing is wrong, right? This whole thing has really changed the way we view millionaires and billionaires. And the general public is starting to expect more from people who could single-handedly make sure every hospital and charity stays well-funded during this pandemic. But these rich assholes are busy singing songs and making dumb videos instead. Except Rihanna, of course. As usual, she is a shining exception to all of this. And a lot more celebrities could follow her example. So let's leave all of that bullshit behind and take a trip back in time together. Back to a time where every celebrity wasn't posting their daily itinerary and breakfast on Twitter for people to like and comment on. When people like Mark Wahlberg weren't bragging about waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning as if that's something anyone should aspire to do. Back to a time when celebrities were a little more private, not just because they wanted it to be so, but also because the studios would pretty much control every aspect of how they represented themselves to the public. I mean, sure, it's not wasn't a particularly good time, but parts of it can be fascinating. One of the most famous figures of this era embodied the new ideal of the teenage rebel like no other, in so much that his rebellious behavior led to his premature death. How iconic do you have to be to only star in three movies before your death and still have people talking about you? 70 or 80 years later, probably about as iconic as the original Rebel Without a Cause, James Dean. Does this episode bring me extra joy because it's discussing the queer life of a young man often held up as the masculine ideal for a cisgender straight man? Absolutely, baby. Rumors about Dean's sexuality have circulated basically since his death, 
and a little bit beforehand. As is usually the case, there's a damn good reason for that. I mean, of course people like to gossip, but you don't see this type of speculation when somebody like Heath Ledger dies, you know? And he straight up starred in a movie as a gay character. So why is there so much speculation about such a shining example of masculine heterosexuality? I'm glad you asked. Let's go over the basics of James Dean. As a young man, he knew he had a passion for acting, so he did what any kid in the 50s would do and moved to Hollywood to pursue his dreams. While trying to make it as an actor, he also worked as a car park attendant for CBS Studios. While working as an attendant, Dean met and befriended Rogers Brackett, a successful radio director and, at 35, a full 15 years older than James. The two became close very quickly, and Dean moved into Brackett's home in L.A. Whether they had a romantic connection or not is somewhat uncertain. While they did live together, Dean had his own room, but Brackett was the financial support of the two. A sugar daddy, if you will. Brackett opened doors for Dean and introduced him to people in the movie industry. He even paid for Dean to move to New York City so he could study acting at the actor's studio. And he introduced Dean to the director of his first movie, East of Eden. The pair remained friends even after Dean moved out and became a big star. By the way, Brackett was openly gay. There seems to always be an older, openly gay man in these stories, isn't there? Dean's agent expressed concern about him living with a known homosexual, and Dean's only explanation was, I have my own room. And when people would whisper that his roommate was a queer, Dean would just answer, yeah, I know. As I said before, Brackett gave James Dean money so he could move to New York City to study at the actor's studio with famed acting coach Lee Strasberg. At the actor's studio, Dean took a class taught by Marlon Brando, <clears throat> someone he already idolized. He stayed after the class to meet Brando and talk to him, and they allegedly began a year-long affair, but their friendship lasted forever, up until Dean's death. Later in life, Brando wrote, Like a large number of men, I too have had homosexual experiences, and I am not ashamed. So it's not like Brando ever tried to hide this aspect of his personality. But let's talk about someone who is a little closer to Dean's age, around his same fame level, on a more even playing field who was also trying to get his career started around the same time. Let's talk about a man named William Bast. Now, Bast became initially very well known for writing a biography about James Dean released shortly after Dean's untimely death. This book was written from Bast's perspective as being James Dean's uh, first fellow student in college and then roommate for a number of years. Uh, the two passed in and out of each other's lives, and they were roommates on multiple occasions in both Hollywood and New York. Uh, the biography was eventually turned into a TV movie about the ill-fated actor in the mid-70s. And one thing I liked about the movie is it stars the guy who plays the radio DJ in a movie called Pontypool, which is one of my favorite zombie movies of all time. If you haven't seen it, definitely watch it. However, in 2006, a good 50 years later, Bast, who was then an out gay man with a longtime husband, wrote a follow-up book titled Surviving James Dean, where he felt more comfortable describing the true details of their five-year relationship. And if you have a chance to read this book or check it out of your local library or finding it in an online library, I highly recommend it. It is a fantastic read, um, not only for this inside look into what James Dean was truly like as a young man, 
but also into how Hollywood was at the time. I sped through this book in a little less than a week, and it is quite enjoyable because it's not just about Bast and Dean's relationship, but about the two of them rising up in the ranks and Bast watching Dean be successful and struggling not only with his own sexuality as a man who realized he was gay and meeting other gay men, but also struggling with these emotions he's having towards James Dean. And if you're thinking it's going to be some salacious deep dive money grab trying to play off of the Dean's name, I would say there is one beautiful scene where after years of back and forth, and the two of them impacting each other's lives in different ways. They end up staying at a ranch together, and Dean finally comes on to Bast. And Dean basically says, why didn't you do this sooner? And Bast says, I guess I was afraid. And Dean says, there's nothing to be afraid of. And then Bast says, and there wasn't. And it's a beautiful passage because William Bast is such a fantastic writer. And he did end up becoming a scriptwriter for a number of years. So you can tell that he definitely has the skill for it. And the book is also heartbreaking because you absolutely get the sense that Bast and Dean were about to build a life together. James had just asked William to move back in with him so that he could focus on writing and not so much on the sitcom scripts he was having to write at the time, but focus on the real meaningful writing that meant a lot to him. Uh, I believe this was Dean's way as sort of passing along the gifts that had been given to him. So the two were had just moved in together and... James Dean's film Giant was about to be released, featuring a role that he could really sink his teeth into, and that would have definitely been a launching pad to skyrocketing stardom, especially after his two phenomenal performances in East of Eden and Rebel Without a Cause. So this is really the first step in what could have been a beautiful, meaningful relationship, even if Perhaps they didn't end up staying together for the long term. You can tell that this is the next step in something that's been happening for a while. And that's when James Dean gets in his fateful car crash and William is forced to deal with what could have been, but ends up inevitably never to be. The last few chapters, even though they're, they take place after Dean's death, provide a snapshot into what it was like for William Bass to be such a close friend and what led him to eventually write the famous biography. So if you can pick up a copy of Surviving James Dean, I highly recommend it. I'll add a link in the show notes to where I was able to find it in an online library. So please do. It's what else are you going to do right now? Just read a fun book written by an exceptional gay man. So getting past the wonderful writing of William Bast and their close relationship, there's also the fun anecdote about the filming of the movie Giant, which was Dean's third film. According to Noreen Nash, one of the other actors on the film, Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson placed a bet to see who could sleep with Dean first. 
allegedly, Hudson won the bet just a few days after shooting began, and the two remained together during the shoot until Hudson dumped him. It should also be noted that Sal Mineo, another actor who came out as gay later in life and also starred with Dean in Rebel Without a Cause, was also in Giant, which... Speaking of, I'm also going to add in the show notes the screen test of Rebel Without a Cause so you can see how close Dean and Mania were. So we've talked a bit about what other people said, but did James Dean actually say anything? When questioned about his sexuality, Dean said, no, I am not a homosexual, but I'm also not going to go through life with one hand tied behind my back. However, this is most likely what Brock Hudson, Marlon Brando, Sal Mineo, or any other young man wanting to still have a career in Hollywood at the time would have said. I mean, this was the same time they were making the PSAs about gay men being predators and kidnapping children. Besides, Dean avoided the draft by registering as a homosexual, which you could say is because he didn't want to go to the Korean War, but... It also seems a little bit more than advantageous. Because of Dean's numerous public and private affairs with women, and all private affairs with men, the consensus and general opinion of his sexuality seems to shift with the times. Some people believe he was a straight man who slept with men to advance his career, evidenced by his alleged affairs with Roger Brackett and Marlon Brando. Others believe he was a gay man who slept with women to advance his career, since he had very public relationships with Natalie Wood and Marilyn Monroe. Or can we remove emotion from the equation completely? Was he so desperate to be famous he didn't care who he slept with, as long as it furthered his career? And then there's a fourth option. Could Dean, like his idol Marlon Brando, be a bisexual man who slept with people because he was attracted to them, and wanted to feel a connection with someone. You've heard what I have to say. What do you think? Send me an email at outofqueerhistory at gmail.com or message me on Instagram at outofhistorypodcast. Let me know what you think, because I'm intrigued to hear what your opinions are, given everything I told you, plus any other supplemental material you might happen to see. In any case, when it comes to this iconic, manly, heterosexual icon, I think it's safe to say that while he certainly was quite manly, I don't believe we can for certain say heterosexual. I hope you enjoyed this episode, guys. Um, As I said before, please feel free to send me an email and please follow me on Instagram. I like to post fun stuff and other history memes and stuff like that. So I'll link them both in the show notes along with the stuff I said prior. And I do really want to hear what your opinions are. I'd love to hear if I've changed your mind or opened up your eyes to somebody you didn't previously think about, or if you think I'm full of horse apples. So shoot me an email and let me know. And join me next time for another ex- <clears throat> and join me next time for another exploration of the history they tried to bury. And don't forget, you're creating your own history every day. So make it a good one. And I'll see you next time. That in hopes that someday there'll be no need to demonstrate the right to make love to anybody you want, any way you want. Or you gotta start somewhere.